How would you remain standing as we uh, read the scripture that Zach will be pray, uh, preaching on this morning? Uh, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devices wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Thank you. You may be seated. Thanks, Mike. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. That's a little cheery text to start us off for Christmas. Here are these things God hates. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach Lee, one of the pastors here. Super excited to be with you this morning as we go through this difficult list in Proverbs of all these things God hates. So let me say before, just before we get started, bear with me through this sermon because there's a lot of things that are convicting and a lot of hate-filled language, but wait, because at the end we have the good news of the gospel. The gospel is not God hates us and the end, okay? That could have been the story. Had I been God when Adam and Eve sinned, that would have been my story. But instead, God has God has made a way to where we can move from being under his wrath to being under his love and his grace. And so we'll get there at the end, but bear with me as we work through this text. Let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump in. Father, I thank you that you're good and that you love us and that you care for us. I thank you that you brought us here today to uh, hear specifically what, uh, what you have to say in your word. So I just pray that you would give us grace, that you would be with those who are hurting today, that you would be with those who are sick, that you would be with those who are doubting and struggling, uh, that you would be with those that feel like you hate them. And rather, they might realize that there's forgiveness in Christ and that there's no wrath for those that know Jesus. And so I ask that you would uh, just be with us in this sermon. We love you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, if you've got a Bible, Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 16. Because this text has a lot of difficult things in it, I'm going to start with some jokes. How's that sound? I have created a list of seven things that Zach Lee hates. So we can look at those before we look at the things God hates. You ready? Thing the first, number one. Clowns, okay? Clowns. I hate clowns. I'm not afraid of clowns. I'm afraid of the man that decides to become one, right? At some point, somebody thought, this is a good career move for me. This is a good resume builder. Maybe I want to work my way up to magician, and so I've got to go through the clown route or something like that. I have a zero-tolerance clown policy. If it's not Halloween or a birthday party and I see a clown, I shoot on sight, okay? It should be illegal in the state of Texas to be a clown, If I'm elected governor, I'll make that a law. Number two, second thing I hate, is the haircut known as the man bun. Does everybody know what this haircut is? It is where a man grows his hair long, and then he puts it up on the top of his head like a bun, okay? Now, there are only three times that that haircut is appropriate. Number one, if you're a samurai, okay? If you're a samurai, you can have a man bun. Number two, if you're a sumo wrestler, but only while you're sumo wrestling, you can have a man bun. Not when you're out on the town, on the streets of Tokyo or whatever. Only while you're sumo wrestling. And then number three, if you're a woman. If you're a woman, you can have a bun on the top of your head. That's totally fine. But if you're a man, stop it. You look ridiculous, okay? (laughs) Number three, third thing I hate. I hate car commercials that assume that I know what APR financing is. I'm always watching the TV, and it'll say 0% APR financing as if that's a selling point for me. I'm a pastor, I have no life skills, I'm pretty sure I've never even paid taxes, and so that's not a selling point for me, okay? If you want to sell me a car, show it in Dallas traffic when it's 106 degrees. I'm not racing through the mountains, I'm not sliding on the ice, I'm sitting in traffic, okay? 
That's the third thing I hate. Number four, Justin Bieber. Number five. <laughs> number five. <clears throat> when the waiter tells me to enjoy my meal and I say, you too. <laughs> I always feel like an idiot. Here you go, enjoy your nachos. You too, waiter. You enjoy your nachos. You go in the back, you eat your nachos, I'll eat my nachos here, we'll really be eating our nachos together. I hate that. I hate that. Number six, when somebody gives me directions using north, south, east, or west instead of left or right, okay? I don't know if you know this or not, I'm pretty directionally challenged. I said Denton was this way during my last sermon, okay? It is not. I'm not Meriwether Lewis. I am not Magellan. Tell me left or right. I don't know. I, I, I've heard that the sun rises in the east, but I've never actually taken the time to check, okay? I've just kind of taken people's word for it. So I need left or right, not cardinal directions. And then number seven, I despise getting hiccups as an adult because I feel like an idiot, okay? I'll be having a fight with my wife, an argument with my wife, and I'm like, well, the reason that you need to respect me is because, and I just sound like a drunk baby, and it's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I'll be trying to counsel somebody at church. I'm like, here's the one thing you need to know about God's grace. That's it. I hate it, all right? I hate it. These are seven things I hate. Now, is this list I just gave you exhaustive? Are those all the things that I hate? No, I hate onions. I hate the shoes known as Crocs. I hate it when people talk too much about CrossFit. There's a bunch of other things that I hate. This list is not exhaustive. In the same way, this text that we're going over today is not an exhaustive list. There are other things specifically that God hates. We're just going to look at a few of those things, though, today. Does that make sense? This is not an exhaustive list. This is just some things that God is highlighting for us to know that He hates these things. Now, additionally, this is not what is known as the seven deadly sins. You guys ever heard of the seven deadly sins? The seven deadly sins idea comes out of Roman Catholicism. It's not something that the Bible actually teaches. It was really popularized by the writer Dante, if you know who Dante is. And the seven deadly sins are pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth. Behind those is the idea that these are natural, sinful inclinations of the human heart, and so they're called the seven deadly sins. I don't think that's biblical. I don't think that's a very good list. If I'm going to pick the seven worst sins, I'm going to not have, like, gluttony. I'm going to have genocide or something else in, in there instead. And so that comes out of Roman Catholicism. That's not a biblical idea. That's not what this list is. But we are going to look at seven things specifically God says that He hates. But again, bear with me. There's good news in the end. You guys ready? Ready to get into the text? Okay. Two people are ready. Verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Here's what this means. Here's what verse 16 means. God hates all sin, but here we are told of seven specific things that God hates. I want to comment a few things on this verse. The first thing I want you to see here biblically is that God hates things. Did you know that? Did you know that God is not just loving, although He's certainly loving, He's not just gracious, although He's certainly gracious, that one of God's attributes is wrath, anger, violence. These are attributes of God. God hates things. In fact, biblically, we're commanded to hate things too. We're told to hate what is evil. And so you need to realize that God's love and God's wrath are not incompatible. They're not incompatible. In fact, when you love something, you hate what opposes what you love. I'll give you an example. I love my son Judah. I love him dearly. So if my son were to get cancer, how would I feel about cancer? I would hate it. I would despise it. I would burn with hot wrath towards it. Why? Because I love my son. When you love something, you have wrath towards the thing that opposes what you love, and it's the same way with God. How can God be loving and send people to hell and these kind of things? His love and His righteousness, His love and His wrath go together. And so this text is going to tell us that God hates some things. 
Additionally, I want you to see in verse 16 what is known as parallelism. What is the most common feature of poetry in English? What is it? When you think of poetry in English, what do you think of? Rhyming, right? Poems don't have to rhyme, but a lot of poems in English, when we think of poetry, we think of rhyming, right? Roses are red, violets are blue, some poems rhyme and some don't. That kind of idea, right? In Hebrew, the primary element of Hebrew poetry or figurative language, which is included in Proverbs, is what is known as parallelism. Parallelism is where you talk about the same thing twice. Sometimes you elaborate on it. Sometimes you say something like this, the righteous will be vindicated, the righteous will inherit the earth, okay? And you're saying the same thing twice by both of those phrases. That's called parallelism. Or sometimes you contrast it. The righteous will inherit the earth, but the wicked will be judged. That's a form of parallelism, okay? That's a form of parallelism. So we see that here in this text. So here's my question for you. What is going on with this whole 6-7 thing? Look again at verse 16. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. What is going on with this whole 6-7 thing? That is a form, it's a literary device used in both Hebrew literature and other literature from the ancient Near East that basically does two things, okay? Number one, it means the list is not exhaustive. It means the list goes on. There are more than just seven things that God hates. But number two, and I think this is the bigger one for this text specifically, this is a way to put a special amount of emphasis on whatever that seventh thing is, okay? God hates six things. Really, he hates seven. So you're, a, you're supposed to pay a special amount of attention to whatever that seventh thing is. Are you with me? Okay, let me show you a few places where this occurs in the Old Testament. Job 5.19. I think we're going to throw these up there. There we go. Job 5.19. He will deliver you from six troubles, and seven, no evil shall touch you. Proverbs 30.18. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four, I do not understand. And in these cases, you're supposed to put the emphasis on the second number. Okay? Supposed to put the emphasis on the second number. Now, as we go through verses 17 through 19, five body parts are going to be mentioned that God hates and two kinds of people. Five body parts and two kinds of people. Now, let me be clear. It's not that God hates these body parts. Okay? It, when it says that God hates a lying tongue, the, God doesn't hate your tongue. Your tongue doesn't lie. You do, and I do. Or when it says that God hates haughty eyes, God doesn't hate your eyes, these things in your head that look around. He hates pride. That's the idea, okay? So the issue here, though there are different body parts being mentioned, they're used as a literary device. It's the sin behind those body parts that we're really supposed to be focusing on. You with me? Okay, let's go over the first three. Verse 17, things God hates. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Here's what verse 17 means. It means God hates pride, falsehood, and unrighteous violence. Pride, falsehood, and unrighteous violence. Let's look at the first one. Let's look at pride. It says, haughty eyes. By the way, that's H-A-U-G-H-T-Y, not H-O-T-T-I-E, okay? God doesn't hate haughties with eyes. He hates a haughty eye. That means a proud eye. The idea in Hebrew is someone who has a proud look in their eye, someone who looks down their nose at other people. People who are walking around in pride, they just have this kind of proud look to them, and that's specifically what this is condemning. Now, I find it interesting of this list of seven things that God hates that the first one mentioned is pride, okay? That the first one mentioned is pride. There's something about God to where He just especially hates pride. Pride is almost like this root of a bunch of other sins. I wouldn't say of all sin, but it's, it seems to be a big one. Mankind falls because of pride, wanting to be like God. The devil falls because of pride. Twice the Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We're told not to make a new convert an elder lest he fall into conceit and the condemnation of the devil. There's just something about God that hates pride because pride points at you as being God instead of God being God. 
And this text says you need to watch out for pride. Now, I think we know that, but I think it plays itself out very subtly, very subtly. Those who walk in pride have a tendency not to see it, not to see it. So if you're thinking of somebody else, you have to stop and you have to think of yourself first, okay? Tell you a little story. When I was in college, I had a roommate that came in and he was wearing these cool jeans, all right? Not skinny jeans. Again, I feel about skinny jeans like I do about the man bun, but uh, he was wearing these cool jeans and I said, I love those jeans. Those are cool. Where can I get some cool jeans as well? And he said, come with me. I know a guy who sells these cool jeans. And I said, okay, let's do it. So we get in the car and we drive up to this loading dock that also has a warehouse on it, okay? It looks creepy, all right? There's like bats flying out of it and stuff. It looks creepy. There's this loading dock and a warehouse. And I'm like, where are we? We're not going to go to the mall to get some jeans or maybe like a store where there are people. And he's like, no, man, this guy sells jeans out of this warehouse. And I'm like, great, let's go get murdered. And so we go in there to buy these jeans. And a guy comes up to me and he's wearing no shoes. And he walks up to me and he has a real thick accent. I don't know where he was from. And he just goes, do you want to know how I became so successful? And I thought, you're selling jeans out of a warehouse and you're not wearing any shoes. By all means, Steve Jobs, please tell me how you became so successful. And then he just assumed that he was successful, all right, through his jeans slash drug trafficking outfit is what it looked like, okay? There's this tendency with pride for us not to see it when we're walking in pride. So I want to ask some questions that I think can be convicting. They're convicting for me because I struggle with pride. But let me ask these questions, okay? First, where do you think that you have something that wasn't given to you by God? Where do you think that you have something that wasn't given to you by God? When in your mother's womb did you decide that you would be smart, that you would be financially savvy, that you would be athletic, that you would be beautiful, that you would be handsome? When did you decide that in your mother's womb? You did not. Everything you have is given to you by God, period. Oh, yeah, but I worked hard. Who determined you'd be the kind of person that would work hard? God did. Yeah, but I, I, I applied myself in school. I went to a good school. I'm good with money, whatever it is. Who determined you would be that kind of person? And the answer is God did. Anything you think that has come from your hand, that you're a self-made man or woman, that is an area of pride. Here's another one. In what area do you think where you're an expert where you're not an expert? If you do not have a medical degree, you are not an expert in medicine, okay? If you do not have a law degree, you are not an expert in law. Every time some decision is made in politics, everyone instantly assumes that they have a degree in constitutional law, right? Where do you think you're an expert where you're not an expert? Because that can mark an area of pride. Here's another one. I like this one. Where do you think that you're just a little more savvy than everybody else? I've realized this. This is a universal human condition. We all think that we have just a little something special that nobody else has, right? We think we just have a little bit more savvy. We're just a little bit smarter. We just seem to get things and nobody else gets it. But listen to me. Everybody feels that way. You're not special and neither am I. I don't know if your mom loved you, but I'm here to tell you this. Ready? You're not special and I'm not special. We're special in that we're loved by God, but that's about it, okay? It's kind of like when people say, I hate stupid people. You know who says that? Everyone, including stupid people, right? Everyone thinks we just have this little something extra that other people don't have, and that can mark pride. That can show pride. Where do you think that you're better than other people because of your acts of righteousness? Where do you look down on people who sin differently than you do? Or have you forgotten what religion you're in? This is not Islam where you do more good deeds than bad. It is not Hinduism where you have karma and the better you live, you get reincarnated in another state. It's, none of, it's not Buddhism where you try to eliminate one. In Christianity, 
There's just a bunch of dirty, broken people that do not have access to God, and God condescends. The second person of the Trinity takes on flesh, becomes human, to live the life we should have lived, die on a cross for our sins, be resurrected, and provide eternal life. Any righteousness you have is given to you by Christ, period. As Jonathan Edwards says, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Where do you look down on other people because of your acts of righteousness? And then lastly here, where do you think that you're the point? Where do you think that you're the point? Where you're the point, where, where, the, where the world revolves around you. Where you're the point of your life, you're the point of your family, you're the point of your job, you're the point of your own story, because that marks an element of pride. One of the things that's weird with pride is pride is really self-focus. Someone who walks in arrogance is committing pride, but also someone who's continually in anxiety or continually in depression or continually the victim. Now, let me be clear. It's okay to struggle with depression. I do. It's okay to struggle with anxiety. I do. But what I've realized is when I'm doing that, guess what all my thoughts are on? Zach. And that is a form of pride. Where is it where all your thoughts and focus is on you instead of Christ? Because that is an area of pride. Let's look at the second body part here named. A lying tongue in verse 17. Falsehood. Falsehood. Okay? We as Christians are supposed to speak the truth because God is truth. Okay? It is the devil who lies. He's the father of lies. You speak English or you speak Spanish, the devil speaks lie. That's his native tongue. Okay? God, though, speaks truthfully, so we're to speak truthfully. What does it mean to speak truthfully? It means that your language should correspond with reality. As Christians, we hold to what is called a correspondence theory of truth, which means this. If there is a cat on the table and I say there is a cat on the table, is that sentence true or false? True. Okay? If there is a cat on the table and I say there is not a cat on the table, is that sentence true or false? False. Okay? You've got it. It's pretty simple. Here's Aristotle's definition of truth. To say that which is, is, and that which is not, is not, is true. It's a pretty good definition. Okay? Now, here's the thing. I think we all know this again. It's like pride. We all know as Christians you shouldn't have a lying tongue. We all know that we shouldn't tell a bold-faced lie, okay? By the way, is it a bold-faced or a bald-faced lie? Bold. For me, it's a bold-faced lie. For Carl, it's a bald-faced lie, okay? <laughs> he can call down she-bears if he wants. We all, know, we all know that we shouldn't just obviously tell lies, so what we end up doing sometimes is we lie in more subtle ways. So let me ask you a few questions on this one. When recounting something that happened, where do you change the story so that you look good? Where do you change the story so that you look good? By the way, this is just about every fight you have with your spouse. You're talking about the same issue, but you're telling the story where your spouse looks like the enemy and you look like the good guy. And your spouse is telling the same story where you look like the enemy and they look like the good guy. Right? Anybody? Anybody? Is that true? A bunch of lying tongues with hands not up. Right? That's what happens. There'll be times where I'm arguing with my wife, Katie, and halfway through the argument, I realize that I'm wrong. And at that point, I have a moral conundrum. I'm like, oh my gosh, I just realized I'm wrong. But I've already come so far. (laughs) If I repent now, I will have wasted all that argument. And I have to wrestle through that. Where do you tell a story so that you look like the good guy and you change details? That's a form of lying. Where is it that you don't accurately present the position of your opponent? That's a way that we more subtly lie. Where is it that perhaps you don't lie, you just don't tell the whole truth? There are six things that happen, but you don't like two of those, so you just tell the four things that happened in the story. These are all forms of lying. And then lastly for this question, is there any area in your life where you just need to come clean? Is there any area in your life where you've been walking in falsehood and you just need to confess to your spouse, to a coworker, to somebody else that you've been walking in falsehood? If you need help with that, chat with a staff or elder. We would love to be able to help you, okay? So here's what this text is going to say. Walk in truth. 
speak what is true. Now, anytime I'm ever teaching anybody about truth, I'll have a student raise their hand or someone in the congregation or in theological equipping, they'll raise their hand and they will say this, Zach, what if you are in Poland in 1942 and you are hiding Jews in your basement and the Nazis knock on the door? Do you tell the truth then? Okay. I remember uh, in uh, Bible college, I remember hearing these two guys having this debate. Here's what they were debating. Whether or not a pump fake in basketball was sin. Okay. Now, there should be somebody on seminary campuses whose job is to go around and punch people in the face that have that conversation, but what they were doing is, is having this debate. So I don't know if you know uh, about basketball, but if I have the ball and I'm trying to score on the goal and there is somebody guarding me, what you can do is you can act like you're shooting. You can do what's called a pump fake, and then they jump in the air, and then you can dribble around them and score, okay? So they're having the debate, is it deception? Is it lying? What about a magician? When a magician says he's holding something behind his back and he's not, has he sinned? What about in the Bible, Rahab? Or what about uh, the Hebrew midwives? Do you all know the story in Exodus where Pharaoh tells the Hebrew midwives that if a boy is born that is Hebrew to kill that baby, and they don't do it, and Pharaoh calls them to account and says, why aren't you killing these babies? What do they do? They make up a story. And what do they say? They say the Hebrew women are just better at giving birth. They're not like the Egyptian women. The Egyptian women are wimps, right? They labor for like three weeks. These Hebrew women, they are just like human pinatas, just babies everywhere, all right? Just babies all the time. Now, let me say this. Don't let these rare, weird instances that are not real life. The context of a basketball game is not real life. The context of a magic trick is not real life. During times of war and these kind of things, that's not normal life. Don't let those strange exceptions make you de-emphasize what this text is saying, which is this, God hates lying lips. He hates when we don't tell the full truth. He hates when we play the word game and we twist things. This text is going to say, be careful for that. By the way, what do you do if uh, your wife has a new outfit and she loves it and she comes in and spins around and she says, how do I look in my outfit? And you don't like that outfit. What do you do? You lie. I'm kidding. I don't know what you do. That has stumped many a pastor. If you figure it out, let me know. You figure it out, let me know. Look at the third thing mentioned here. Hands that shed what kind of blood? Okay, now this is really important. A lot of Christians do not understand this, so I want to be very clear here. Violence in and of itself is not sinful, okay? In fact, violence is one of God's attributes. Nobody kills more people than God. Nobody damns more people than God, okay? Violence can be used in a righteous way or an unrighteous way. There's righteous violence and there's unrighteous violence, okay? How were the Nazis stopped in World War II? Through discussion? No, through righteous violence, okay? You need to realize that a bullet going through somebody's brain is a morally neutral event. Why is the bullet going through their brain? Are they being murdered or are they being stopped from committing a murder? Imagine somebody who goes into a school and starts shooting up kids. That is a form of unrighteous violence. The SWAT team that has to come and stop that individual is using a form of righteous violence. So the issue is not violence here. The issue is hands that shed innocent blood. It's murder. That's what God is against. That's what God is against. You ever heard the phrase, thou shall not kill? That was popularized by the King James Version of the Bible, but that's not what the text means. It's thou shall not murder. The Hebrew word is ratzach. It means murder. It's used 49 times in the Old Testament. Never once is it used for war. It's used for this idea of unrighteous slang. It's used for the idea of murder. I had a lady one time who was uh, challenging me on uh, some things I believed, and she said, you're a Christian, right? And I said, yes. She said, then how come you're against abortion, but you're not against the death penalty? 
And I said, because the unjust taking of life by an individual is different than the just taking of life by the state. In a sense, we as Christians are not pro-life. We are pro-innocent life, innocent as defined by legal innocence, not sin, because we're all born into sin. But this text is going to say that God hates hands that shed innocent blood. He hates unrighteous violence. He doesn't hate all forms of violence, okay? Not all forms of violence. Verse 18. Let it, what else? Let's see two more things that God hates. Here we go. <clears throat> Again, cheery for Christmas. For Christmas, we're just going to teach about uh, God dashing the baby's heads against the rocks from Psalm 137. It'll be very cheery. We're not doing that, by the way. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Verse 18, a heart that devises wicked plans and feet that make haste to run to evil. Here's what this text is saying. God hates evil scheming and quickly defaulting to evil. Okay? He hates evil scheming where you're planning it, you desire it, that's all you're thinking about, and he hates when your feet rush into it. The idea here is somebody that can't wait to sin. It's like the guy that goes to jail for dealing drugs, and he's not reformed in prison. He's just waiting to get out so he can hurry up and deal some more drugs. That's the idea of feet that is rushing in to evil. Whereas the other three things we mentioned are specific sins. These are more sinful conditions of the heart. So I want to ask you this question because I think verse 18 is profound. Here's a big question for you. Ready? Biblically speaking, according to verse 18, is the problem inside humanity or is the problem outside humanity? Is humanity's problem something external to us, or is humanity's problem something internal to us? That's an important question. That's going to determine where you land socially. It's going to determine where you land in your own spiritual life. It's going to determine where you land politically. It's going to determine that. Is the problem inside humanity, or is it outside of humanity? And what I'm going to say is that, biblically speaking, across the board, the problem is inside humanity. The problem is not education or guns or politics or more money or any of these kind of things. The problem is something inside of us. This was the error, this was the error of prohibition. During the era of prohibition, you had a lot of people getting drunk and beating their wives, and instead of dealing with getting drunk and beating their wives, what they said is, this morally neutral liquid must be the problem, so let's get rid of it. And what happened? Did it stop abuse? Did it stop drunkenness? Did it stop crime? Or in some senses, did it just make it worse? Because again, we have to realize as Christians, the problem is inside of us and the solution is outside of us. It's Christ. In humanistic thinking, it's the other way around. The problem is outside of us and the solution is us. Biblically speaking, though, that is reversed. Here's what Martin Luther, the spearhead of the Reformation, says on this. He says this, we are not sinners because we commit sin, now this one, now that one, but we commit these acts because we are sinners before we do so. That is, bad tree and bad seed produce bad fruit, and from an evil root, nothing but an evil tree can grow. What he's saying is, you don't become a sinner by sinning. You're a sinner, and therefore you sin. The condition, the brokenness that we're born into, because we're born into a broken world, because of the fall of Adam, the fall of man, that is what produces these sinful inclinations. Genesis 6-5 says this about mankind. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is our broken state post the fall. Post the fall. Verse 19. Verse 19. A false witness who breathes out lies. These are the last two. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. Here's what verse 19 means. God hates false witnessing and creating sinful disunity. God hates false witnessing and creating sinful disunity. Now, let's go over each of those. Let's go over false witnessing. Now, let me tell you why this is interesting. In a list of seven things that God hates, lying is mentioned twice. Lying is mentioned twice. What is false witnessing? 
False witnessing is a form of lying, but it's typically a form of lying in a legal context, right? You say that somebody committed a murder who didn't commit the murder. It's a form of lying that has social, political, and legal consequences, and the Bible absolutely despises it far more than we do. Let me read you this passage out of Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 20. I want you to see this about false witnessing. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that, has, that he has committed. All right, that's already very, 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 very different than the age in which we live. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious, no, that's not, I'm sorry, malicious. Malicious is like someone from Malaysia. A malicious witness, if a, mali- a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties uh, to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, look at the next part, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. What happens today if you bring a false witness against somebody, you bring a false charge against them? What happens to you? Most of the time, nothing. Maybe you get sued for slander. Maybe you're charged with perjury, but that's it. What happens in Israel? You get the same consequence as if you had committed the thing you're saying the other person committed. You say this person committed a murder and they did not, you get charged as a murderer. You say this person committed a rape and they did not, you get charged as a rapist. You say this person committed a robbery and they did not, you get charged as a robber. Here's why I'm saying this. In your mind, which is worse, committing the murder or giving a false witness about it? We think committing the murder is worse, but biblically speaking, God hates false witnessing so much that he demands that the consequences of these be the same. Be the same. We're told this in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 5.19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, okay? Even in the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not bear a false witness. Now, here's why I say this. We live in an age, listen, I'm going to say something really profound. You ready? Put on, put on your profound hats. Write this down. Get it tattooed on your forearm. It's very profound. Ready? We live in an age where victimization is cultural currency, is cultural currency, meaning the most offended party should have the loudest voice, we think. Or the person who's most oppressed should have the loudest voice. You need to hear me. God is not on the side of victimizer, and he is not on the side of victim. He is on the side of truth. And so our job as Christians should always be on the side of truth. We condemn murder. We condemn false accusations of murder. We condemn robbery. We condemn false accusations of robbery. We have to always, as Christians, not go to and fro with our political party, but rather always line up behind Bible. Bible is what matters. Who should have the loudest voice biblically? The person who knows the most Bible. We're Protestants. The plowboy that can read his New Testament in German, according to Luther, has more authority than the Pope because we err on the side of truth. Lastly, look at verse 19. A false witness who breathes out lies. Look at the last thing, the seventh thing. And one who sows discord among brothers. One who sows discord among brothers. Now, here's why this is interesting. I said at the beginning that this whole 6-7 literary device that's being used here is meant biblically to put the emphasis on whatever the last thing is. What is the last thing here that you're really supposed to see that God hates? Sinful disunity. And I think that's interesting because the other things I think we know we shouldn't do. We know we shouldn't be proud. We know we shouldn't murder people. We know we shouldn't lie. But I think the text is saying this is something that's more subtle, so you need to pay attention to this. You need to pay attention to this, that God despises when somebody sows discord among brothers. Brothers in the original context means fellow Jews. Today we would apply that to those in the church. That's how we would uh, take that text and apply it today. 
Let me give you several verses that talk about this. Romans 16, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Jude 19, it is these who cause divisions. Who causes divisions? Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Titus 3.10-11, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. God hates sinful disunity. Let me say it stronger. If the church is the bride of Christ, to sow discord within the church is to assault Christ's bride. If the church is the body of Christ, to sow discord in the church is to attack yourself. It's ridiculous. You ever seen somebody choke on their own spit? Huh? It's kind of hilarious. You're just talking to somebody, and all of a sudden they're like, (laughs) and they start choking. You think, what just happened here? Did you choke on some food? No. No external element there. Did somebody come up and grab you by the throat and choke you? No. You basically waterboarded yourself for a quick second, and then you started coughing. And the reason it looks ridiculous is because your body is attacking itself. You ever seen somebody trip over their own feet? It's ridiculous, and it's hilarious, and I've done it, I don't know, every week since I've been alive. Because your feet are made to keep you upright. They're to work together. They're not to try to trip each other up. And when somebody does trip over their own feet, what do they do? They transition it into a jog so that you won't know that they did that. You'll just think, oh, they were going to go for a jog in their jeans in Target. That's what they were doing. That's what they were doing. When we were kids, we used to do this game where we'd have somebody put their fists under their chin, and we'd push down, and we'd say, who's stronger? And so they'd push up really hard, and we'd push down, and we'd move it, and boom, they'd hit themselves right in the mouth. All right? It was awesome. It's one of the reasons I hate hiccups, because hiccups is my body attacking itself. What this text is going to say is God hates sinful disunity because it attacks your own body. It attacks the body of Christ. It attacks the church. So here's my question for you. Here's my question for you. Are there any areas where you are walking in sinful disunity? Are there places where you're murmuring, complaining, grumbling, spreading gossip, maybe here at Parkway, maybe in your job, maybe in your family around Christmas time? Where is it where you're causing sinful disunity? Now, let me be clear. Notice that I keep saying sinful disunity. There are times to break fellowship, right? But those things need to be over doctrine. You don't break fellowship. You don't have disunity over preference. We argue about the gift, not the wrapping paper that it comes in. And so there are times to disunify with somebody. There are times to break fellowship, but that needs to be over major issues. That needs to be over doctrine. That doesn't need to be over preferences and what's liked and what's not liked. Martin Luther again says this, unity if possible, truth at all cost. Unity, if possible, truth at all cost. Many, many churches today are drifting to the other way, where it's truth, if possible, unity at all cost. Unity is a high, high, high value. It's not a value over truth. We have to unify around truth. Okay. Now, that's the text. That's what the text means. Now let's talk about the good news, okay? Because this can be convicting. Ready? I basically just said God hates all these things that we do. Anybody in here uh, ever been proud? Okay. No, about half of you are proud. The other two are proud to realize it. How about uh, uh, anybody in here ever lied? Yeah. Uh, anybody in here ever shed innocent blood? Now, maybe you say, well, that's not me, Zach. But when you look at Jesus, he said that if you have hate in your heart, that it's as if you murdered somebody. So we fail at all these points. And not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. Let me show you another text out of 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 says this. 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I've been an idolater. I've committed sexual immorality. What do we do with these things? If we just stopped there and left that text there, this would be a bleak Sunday. But look at the very next verse we're going to put on the screen. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says this, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is our testimony. You see, we have to be careful of an us versus them mentality. This text is not talking about just lost people. It's saying we were these people. It's not us versus them. We were those people. I've said this before. Christianity is not good people and bad people. It's bad people and Jesus. And everybody gets to belong to one of those two categories, and those are the only categories. These are things that God hates. But if you're a Christian, you've been transferred from these things. You've moved from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. He's changed who you are as a person. I want you to see something else. I want, to sh- I want you to look up. So stay where you are in uh, Proverbs 6 and look up a few verses. Look up at verse 12. We're going to put Proverbs 6, 12 up. Look at this. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. We saw that, lying tongue. Winks with his eyes. We saw that, his haughty eyes. Signals with his feet, his feet that rush to evil. We saw that. Points with his finger with perverted heart. We saw that. Devises evil. We saw that. Continually sowing discord. We saw that. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. Here's what I'm trying to say. This text is not just a list of seven random things that God hates. It's the list of the kind of person that God hates. Did you know that God hates people? Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. I quote, hate the doers of iniquity. You see, we are called to love the sinner and hate the sin. God, in a sense, hates both sin and sinner. But wait, let me explain this. Does God love lost people? Yes, enough to sin Christ, for God so loved the world, right? But is there also a sense in which they fall under his wrath? Yes, because they have broken his laws. So what's amazing is when somebody doesn't know Christ and they're lost, there's a sense in which God loves them because he wants them to be saved, but there's another sense in which he hates them because they have rebelled against him. But when you repent and you trust in Christ, you move to a category where God only has love for you. If you're a Christian, God has zero wrath for you, zero hatred for you. His wrath, his punishment for your sin has been poured out on Christ, and there is none left for you. God only sees you as 100% righteous, 100% pure, 100% clean. There is only grace and love and joy for you if you know Christ, if you know Christ. You see, what the gospel does is God declares you to be something you're not, which is righteous, because Christ actually was righteous. And when you put your faith in Christ, you're placed into Christ. If you think of Jesus as a circle, he's not a circle, he's the God-man, but think of him as a circle. When you repent and you trust in Christ, you're put into that circle, and what's true of Christ is true of you. How perfect is Jesus? He's perfect, so you're seen as perfect. How spotless is Jesus? He's spotless, so you're seen as spotless. How righteous is Jesus? He's perfectly righteous, so you're seen as perfectly righteous. This text is saying something stronger than just God hates things. He's saying God hates those that rebel against him, but through the gospel, through turning away from these things, through embracing Christ, you can move from being hated by God to only being loved by God. All that wrath for all your sin, past, present, and future, has been poured out on Christ. So here's my question. Do you know him? Do you know Christ? Not did you pray a prayer when you were six. Not did you walk down an aisle. Not did you get baptized. That's not the question I'm asking. I'm not asking if you did a religious ritual. Has Christ changed your life? 
Has he come in and said, we're not doing this anymore. I'm in charge. You'll follow me. Has he given you new affections where you love him and where you hate your sin? That's what biblical salvation looks like. So if you don't know Christ, you can. Zach, what do I do? I, I, I think I'm this person. I have a lying tongue. I don't know Christ. This, this, this wicked man exemplifies my life. Here's what you do. You repent. You apologize. You turn away from these things, and you cry out to Jesus to save you, and he will. He is a merciful king that grants a full pardon to anybody that will but bow the knee. But he demands total allegiance. You have to trust Christ and no other gods. You have to trust Christ and none of your own righteousness. You have to trust Christ and not your ability to do it better. You have to trust Christ. And you have to love him more than your dreams and your hopes and everything else. He gets to be everything. You can have Christ as everything or nothing. That's it. That's it. And if that happens, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, will invade your life and transform you, and you will be the opposite of these bad things we mentioned. When Jesus talks about the Sermon on the Mount, everybody know what the Sermon on the Mount is? It's this very famous sermon given by Jesus. It's not just random good rules to live by. It's what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen. These are the charter rules of the kingdom of God. In the same way that in the Old Testament, God gave his law on a mountain, Jesus gives his new law, if you will, on a mountain. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what Jesus says in opposition to everything we've just read in this text. Ready? Instead of having haughty eyes, Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Instead of having hands that shed innocent blood, he said, blessed are the merciful. Not those that pursue their own wrath, their own justice, but blessed are the merciful. Instead of a heart that devises wicked plans, he says, blessed are the pure in heart. God gives you a new heart. Instead of feet that run to evil, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You don't run to evil because you crave it. You run to righteousness because you crave it. Instead of false witnessing and lying, he says, blessed are those when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So you don't do false witnessing. If you know Christ, people will be a false witness against you. And then lastly, instead of one who sows discord, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. That's what he offers. He offers from moving as an identity of being hated and committing sin to an identity of being loved and walking in righteousness, and he does it all. You cannot earn it. It's a free gift. Your job in empty hands of faith is simply to receive it. Let me pray as the men come forward to pass out the elements for communion. And if you don't know Christ, why I'm praying, would you wrestle with God? Would you ask those questions? Maybe you don't believe in God. Maybe your prayer is, God, I don't really think this thing is true, but if so, would you show me? That's an okay prayer. That's an okay prayer. Let's pray as the men come forward. Father, we thank you for uh, just your overwhelming goodness and just ask that you would uh, take this text that we heard and that you would apply it to our lives through the Spirit. Uh, I pray for anybody in here who loves Jesus but feels like Jesus doesn't love them back. I pray that they would realize that, God, that you have no wrath for them, that that wrath was taken away, that they're not hated. They were hated, but now they're adopted sons or daughters. And I pray for those who don't know you. I pray that they would know you, that they would maybe today for the first time in their life feel convicted of their sin they would turn to you and they would ask you for mercy and ask you for grace and ask you for forgiveness. We love you. We thank you for this little church. We thank you for what you're doing here. We just bless your name. It's in Christ's name that we pray this. Amen.